1 Samuel chapter 2. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servants would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with linen ephod. And his mother used to make, him, make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear that the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with men. And there came a man of God to Eli, and he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now, the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so, there will, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever." The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and to all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this, that, and this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest 
who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you this morning for your holy word. Jesus, we remember in your high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 that you prayed to the Father for us and you prayed and said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So God, this morning we are reminded that your holy word is true and your holy word is the instrument that you use to sanctify us, meaning to set us apart as holy and make us like Jesus. So God, as your people here today, we pray that you would sanctify us through your holy word. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, please be seated. If we could put a headline over that very long text that Pastor Ryan just read for us this morning, perhaps the headline would be this, Scandal in the house of God. We read here of great scandal taking place in the house of God, this sanctuary in a town called Shiloh. And tragically, as I read this passage, I'm reminded that that refrain, scandal in the house of God, is a refrain that, unfortunately, we hear far too often as Christians. Even in my relatively short ministry life, I've heard of so many different spiritual leaders who have been involved in scandal and who have crashed and burned and brought reproach on the name of the Lord. Spiritual abuse is a very serious issue. And by spiritual abuse, I mean this, instances in which spiritual leaders leverage or exploit their position of influence and authority to serve their own sinful ends at the expense of the people that they are meant to serve. This is a serious issue. And we're reading a really, really dark and sad episode in the life of God's people. Now, two, the two most common sinful ends that spiritual abusers seek to indulge are greed and lust. Most often when you hear of people who have fallen into grave sin in ministry, it's related to money issues or sexual issues. And it's no surprise then as we look at the corrupt priesthood in Shiloh some 3,000 years ago, that those two issues are the very issues that are at play in this text. In this text, we see the spiritual corruption at the very heart of the religious life of God's people. Now, last week, we left off with a man named Elkanah and his wife, Hannah, heading back to their home in Ramah. They had come to Shiloh for their annual trip there where they would offer sacrifices to the Lord. And on that particular trip, they had brought this miracle baby named Samuel that God had given to them. He was probably three to four years old at that point. And they had left him with Eli, the chief priest, at the sanctuary in Shiloh, so that Samuel could be trained up to serve the Lord as a priest there. The last verse that we ended on, chapter 2, verse 11, 
concludes like this. It says, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. So that's where we left off. But today, as we dive back into this story, what the author is doing for us here in 1 Samuel is he is going to describe for us the conditions of the house of the Lord that this young boy Samuel finds himself in. And as the author does that, what he's going to do is contrast the sons of Eli, named Hophni and Phinehas, with the son of Elkanah and Hannah, a young boy named Samuel. This passage has sort of five vignettes, if you will, that are contrasting these two families. And so that's how I'm going to break up the text. The first vignette that we see here, I've just titled this, The Godless Family of Eli. And it's verses 12 through 17. I want to reread them for you, and then we're going to pick this apart a little bit. But again, this vignette shows us the godless family of Eli. Verse 12 says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force." Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. We'll stop there. Right up front, Eli's two sons are called worthless men. Now that's significant because it sets them in contrast to Hannah's family. If you remember back in chapter 1, verse 16, when we we see that picture of Hannah coming into the sanctuary at Shiloh and she's crying and she's praying to the Lord and Eli the priest sees her, he mistakes her for a drunken woman. And her request to Eli, she says, please don't think of me as a worthless woman. She did not want that to be her reputation because that wasn't true about her. Don't mistake me for one of those people. I'm not a worthless woman. I'm a faithful Hebrew woman. And now the author is contrasting Hannah and her family against what's going on with Eli's family, who were, in fact, worthless men. And we find here the deepest problem related to these two young men in this same verse. It tells us that they did not know the Lord. Think about that. The priests who are running the household of God, who are representing God's people before him, who are in charge of administering the sacrifices, who are offering prayers and blessings over God's people, they themselves don't even have a relationship with God. Titles and position mean nothing without spiritual substance. Did you know that not all spiritual leaders are spiritual people? We have to know that. Otherwise, we will be in total shock when we find leaders who fall from grace. 
And so it's no wonder that the Apostle Paul, when you get to the New Testament, and he talks about the qualifications for those men that we would raise up to be pastors in churches, he emphasizes character. If you look at those qualification lists in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, 90% of the qualifications, maybe even 95% have to do with that person's character. Because ultimately what matters is spiritual substance, not title, not position, and not even alleged giftedness. This is so important for us to remember. These two men who are the priests among God's people don't even know God. And that fact leads to all sorts of spiritual abuse in the sanctuary in Shiloh. Let me just try to explain what's going on here because if you're not an expert in Jewish uh, sacrifice, this, this is a very confusing paragraph. So let me do my best to break this down for us. When God gave Moses the law, God made provision for the priests in Israel to be generously compensated for their service to the Lord. The priests did not have a land inheritance, so they couldn't grow their own you know, produce. And they didn't have other work. They were in the sanctuary serving the Lord day and night. And so God made provision for them that of all the tribes, as these people would come bringing sacrifices and offerings, the priests would be generously compensated for. You can read about that in Deuteronomy 18, 1 through 5, for example. We also know that whenever certain kinds of offerings were brought into the temple and sacrificed, the fat from the animals would be burned as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And then of all of the meat, a part of it would go to the priests and the rest of it would be left with the offerer so that they could have a feast and a meal with their family. Here's what Leviticus 7, 28 through 32 says. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, whoever offers the sacrifice of his peace offerings to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of his peace offerings. His own hand shall bring the Lord's food offerings. He shall bring the fat with the breast that the breast may be waved as a wave offering before the Lord. Check out verse 31. The priest shall burn the fat on the altar but the breast shall be for Aaron and his sons and the right thigh you shall give to the priest as a contribution from the sacrifice of your peace offerings. So the law was saying, listen, when you bring a peace offering, you burn the fat, that's a pleasing aroma to the Lord, that's his part of the sacrifice. And then again, you divvy up the meat, some goes to the priest and you keep some yourself. Okay, so the problem with what Hophni and Phinehas are doing is threefold. First, they were not content with what God had provided, so they would require, check it out in verse 14, all that the fork brought up, okay? Not just what God had said they could have. They said to their servants, you go stick that fork in there and you bring up all the meat you can get. Whatever it gets, we're taken for us. Number two, they would take their meat from the offerer, look at verse 15, before the fat was burned. Meaning that these priests are saying, we want to receive our part of the offering before God even gets his. In fact, we want to actually consume some of God's part of the offering ourselves. You'll see that in verse 29. Third and finally, these priests would use intimidation and threats of violence 
to coerce the people of God into indulging their greed. I mean, verse 16 is so shocking. It says, and if the man said to him, so you've got these just run-of-the-mill average Hebrew people, these Jewish people coming in and offering sacrifices, and they're seeing what these priests are doing, and they're going, man, that's, that's not what the law says. And, and so these guys would say to them, hey, how about just let us burn the fat first? Like, isn't that what the Bible says we should do? How about we burn the fat first and then you can just take whatever you want. We don't even care anymore, but just don't take your stuff before God gets his part of the offering. And when these people would try to correct these priests, they would respond and say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. No wonder verse 17 says, thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Okay, so do you get the picture from vignette number one? Things are bad in the house of the Lord here in this town called Shiloh. Vignette number two now shows us the godly family of Hannah and Elkanah. Look at verse 18. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. Now Samuel although very young, is here pictured as a member of the priestly team at Shiloh. Undoubtedly, he's an apprentice who's just helping out and trying to learn the ropes. But he is, we read, ministering before the Lord, and he is clothed with a linen ephod. And a linen ephod was just standard priestly attire in Israel. So the author here is contrasting Samuel with the sons of Eli. Eli's sons, who were the priests, they did not know the Lord. But Samuel, this young apprentice, training for the priesthood, is ministering before the Lord. Here's the point. God is saying, there is a faithful priest being raised up in Shiloh. Don't you worry. I've got a man who's being raised up to serve me. Now, I love verse 19 because... We do get a glimpse here into the tender and loving care of this mom, Hannah, for her precious son, Samuel. I mean, last week was really sad. She hands off her little three or four-year-old boy to Eli in Shiloh. And we know from the text, she only gets to see him like once a year. But the author here gives us this little footnote just to show us that even though her son was far away from her physically, he was always in her heart. Here's what verse 19 says. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. So she would take uh, some materials every single year and she would sew a little cloak or a robe, which is basically an outer garment that these priests could wear to keep them warm. She would sew one for him every single year, just the next size up. You know, just envisioning how, how big is my boy this year? And she'd make him this robe and she would come and bring it to him every year. And this is a great reminder, especially to all of the moms here on Mother's Day, that even the seemingly little things that you do, like taking care of your children's clothes, are noticed by the Lord. I mean, why does this have to be included in the Bible? Except to just show us that God takes notice of her love and her tender care of her little son, Samuel. Well, while they were there, the priest Eli would also pronounce a blessing over this couple, over Elkanah and Hannah. And his blessing was like, Lord, 
Would you just continue to give them more and more children? And guess what? God delivered on this. And God gave this couple five more children for a total of six kids at this point in their life. This is truly a fulfillment of Hannah's prayer from last week in 1 Samuel 2, 5, where it says, the barren has born seven. This little vignette ends in verse 21 saying this, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Moving on now to vignette number three, we see here the enabling leadership of Eli. Look at verse 22. Now Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Heavy. Now, Because of Eli's advanced age, he's over 90 years old at this point. Because of that, Eli is no longer hands-on in the operation here at uh, Shiloh. In fact, his boys, Hophni and Phinehas, who are much younger priests, they are the ones that are in charge of the day-to-day operations at Shiloh. But he is still the head priest. He's the chief priest. And he's hearing reports that all the people are bringing to him about all the wickedness that his sons are doing in the sanctuary of the Lord. And the first thing there where it says that he keeps hearing all that they were doing is referring back to what we already talked about in verses 12 through 17 regarding the offerings. But notice now there's another layer of their wickedness that's exposed to us. It says, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So family, listen, now we see the extent of just the pure wickedness of these young men who were serving as priests in God's house. They're leveraging their position as the spiritual leaders in Israel to serve their own sinful appetites. Their greed, wanting to take more than God had allocated for them, and their lust as they're being Uh, as they're sexually involved with all of these young women who are meant to be serving the Lord at at the sanctuary. And so finally, after Eli has just heard this over and over and over again from enough people, he confronts his boys. And essentially he says three things. Two of them are questions and one of them is a statement. He says, why do you do such things in verse 23? In verse 24, he says, it is no good report that I hear. So he's letting them know this is bad what you're doing. And then number three, in verse 25, he says, who can intercede for you? What a heavy verse that is in verse 25. Eli says, look, if a person sins against another person, they can go to God to mediate between them to try to reconcile it, or, or to the judges. The word Elohim there can be translated either God or judge, depending on the context. So, so Eli's saying, look, if you, if, you, if you and another person have an issue, if there's sin between you and another person, you can either go to the judge, who's God's appointed representative, or God himself, and they can mediate between the two of you and bring resolution. But then he looks at what his sons are doing, and he says, but if a man just sins directly against God, 
presumptuously offending God, like who can he turn to to intercede for him? Who can you call up? What lawyer can come and advocate for you against the Most High and give you a favorable outcome? That's what Eli's saying. God sees it all. God knows everything and you stand guilty and condemned before the Almighty. What hope is there for you, sons? You know, David in Psalm 51, which is David's prayer after his great sin of adultery with Bathsheba and then having her husband murdered. Remember, he's confronted by the prophet Nathan and he goes and he prays to the Lord in Psalm 51. And in verse four, he says something really, really important. He says, against you only, Lord, have I sinned. Now that's a reminder that all of our sin, even his sin of adultery and murder, all of our sin are ultimately sins against the Lord. And so this question in verse 25 that Eli poses to his sons should honestly cause every single one of us to shudder and to tremble. We've all sinned against the Lord and the question becomes, who can intercede for us? Can your parents, can your pastor Can a lawyer, a defense attorney, can somebody intercede for you? Who can intercede for us? Well, praise be to God that in the gospel, we find out exactly who can intercede for us. God himself intercedes for us. God himself comes to this earth and becomes a man and lives a righteous life that you and I can't live live, and then dies on the cross in your place and in my place so that our sins can be forgiven and we can be reconciled back to God. Here's how Paul puts this in 1 Timothy 2 through 5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Family, we have a mediator. There is one who stands to intercede for us before God for all of our sins. And therefore, you and I who trust in Jesus, we can experience mercy. But guess what? Eli's sons never turned to God in repentance. They never ever trusted in him and received mercy. Verse 25 tells us as much. They would not listen to the voice of their father. And now, you guys, we see how far gone these two boys are. First, we we learned that they had no regard for the warnings of God's word. They knew what the law was. God gives you this much of the offering, and they said, forget about that. We're going to do it our own way. We also saw that they had no regard for the warnings from the people who were offering these sacrifices. When they tried to warn them, hey, hey, let us burn the fat first, and then you can take whatever you want. They said, no, we're not going to do that either. And now finally, we see here that they had no regard for the warnings of their own father. When he tried to stop them and say, boys, what you're doing is not good. They didn't listen to him. They completely blew him off. These two young men feel like they're untouchable. And they don't believe that they have any authority beyond themselves. And because of that, they are now at the, they're past the point of no return Verse 25 at the end again, it says, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. God had made a determination now. Joyce Baldwin in her commentary on 1 Samuel writes this. She says, like the Pharaoh of Exodus 5.2, who said he had no intention of heeding the voice of the Lord and thereafter became increasingly obstinate until the Lord hardened his heart. 
So Hophni and Phinehas sealed their own fate by their refusal to take warning, end quote. Now that's a terrifying statement, right? It was the will of the Lord to put them to death. But here's what I'm encouraged by as I read that. I'm encouraged by that statement because that statement shows us God's heart regarding spiritual abuse. God does not take that lightly. God sees what these men are doing in his name. He sees the way that they are preying on the people of God. All of these precious sheep that God loves so much. And God's not going to sit back idly and just turn a deaf ear to that. God pronounces a judgment on them and says, I'm going to kill them for this. I'm encouraged by that. With how much spiritual abuse does exist in the world to know how God feels about it, that ultimately there will be a day of reckoning before God that he sees all of it. And this is not some small little thing that God overlooks. Certainly God had given these men opportunity to repent. There were warnings like we just talked about. But at the end of the day, God's heart is clear on this matter. This is no small thing. And the Lord's heart is for the victims who are being abused here. God will hold people accountable. Okay, vignette number four. The growing leadership of young Samuel. It's just one verse long. It's verse 26. It says, now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. So as he grew in stature, meaning Samuel was getting bigger, he was getting older, he was simultaneously growing in favor with both God and with his contemporaries. Significantly, this wording here is borrowed almost verbatim by the gospel writer Luke to describe the 12-year-old Jesus after Jesus is in the temple schooling all the religious leaders. Remember, he's like the 12-year-old outsider who comes in and is just totally rocking these guys with what the Bible actually says. And Luke says this in Luke 2.52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So what an affirmation this is of young Samuel's godliness and his spiritual attentiveness. Now, as I was meditating this week on the interplay that we're seeing here between Samuel and Eli and his kids, I was struck by this thought here, that Samuel was raised from such a young age in a toxic and wicked environment. And yet, against all odds, he overcomes them. Okay, we know that the environment that we're in is very important for how we're formed, but it is not ultimately important. Environment is powerful, but God's grace is more powerful. And so Samuel here, even though that is his experience from three years old on upward, in, in the grace of God, Samuel is able to withstand all of that toxic influence, all of that abusive culture around him, and still rise up as a man of God and a man of righteousness. And so we are more than our circumstances. We are not victims of our circumstances. We might have been victimized at some points in our circumstances. But if your faith is in Jesus' family, listen, you're a child of God. 
and you are covered by the grace of God and you are empowered by the grace of God to be the woman or the man that God called you to be. And I love that. This is so encouraging to me. I also love this, that some of you parents here, maybe you didn't come to Jesus until later in life. And maybe as you look back on the environment you raised your kids in, there's a lot of heartache there. Guess what? God's grace is more powerful than the environment your kids were raised in. And so what can you do now? Well, you can model faithfulness and godliness to your children now. And you can pray, 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 pray that the grace of God gets a hold of your children. So this is good news here. I'm encouraged by what we see here. Samuel rises above the environment in the power and the grace of God. All right, fifth and final vignette. And the heaviest of all of them. This is the downfall of the family of Eli. Let's read verses 27 and 28. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. So God sends now an unnamed prophet to go and confront Eli. And he asks him, hey, wasn't it to your family and to your father who I gave the ministry of the priesthood to? Now, when he talks about giving it to Eli's father when they were slaves in Egypt, this is a, ref a reference back to the first priest in Israel, Aaron. Remember, God had raised up Moses to deliver his people out of slavery in Egypt, but he also raised up Aaron to be the first priest. We read about this in multiple places. Here's Exodus 28.1. God says to Moses, Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. So God says to him, Eli, we need to have a pep talk. Didn't I give the priesthood to you? And didn't I give the priesthood to your father, Aaron, and it seems like God is even referring to the provision that he spelled out in the law that they were supposed to receive parts of the offering when he says in verse 28, and didn't I give to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel? So God's saying, listen, I, I made you guys priests. You have a holy calling. I set you apart with a special calling and I was there taking care of you. You had access to to these offerings that were coming in, it's almost like God saying, wasn't that special enough for you? Isn't that a holy enough calling that it should have made you want to rise up to the occasion? And then in verse 29, God has to say one more thing to him. He has to ask him a question. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me? by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. So church, here we see the great sin of Eli, honoring his sons above the Lord. In effect, what Eli is doing is Eli is breaking the first commandment, which is the most foundational of all of them. That's, that's why it's number one, right? 
The first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. Translation, I am number one in your life. Nothing is above me. Nothing takes precedence over me. And Eli in practice here by tolerating the sins and the abuses of his children in the sanctuary, Eli has been saying they matter more than you. Eli would rather insult and dishonor God himself than create a relational rift between him and his children. Now, Jesus in the New Testament says something similar. Jesus says it this way. He says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So listen, God expected Eli to do more than just confront his sons. God expected Eli to stop his sons. And the reason for that is because Eli was still the ultimate authority in the sanctuary in Shiloh. And this is so helpful too. I was encouraged by this this week. Because we've already seen God's heart toward spiritual abuse. But now we're actually seeing God's heart toward enablers of spiritual abuse. Eli could have and should have stopped this from happening and he didn't. And God's not okay with that. And with most of the stories, probably, well, I shouldn't say all, I don't know, but most of the stories that you hear about of serious spiritual abuse, there are people involved in the story who knew what was going on and did nothing. Or worse, knew what was going on and covered for it and enabled it to continue. And here we're seeing God's heart toward that as well. God's looking at that and saying, you had a responsibility to say something too. You had a responsibility to try to put an end to that. And God's holding Eli responsible for this as well. And family, this is a great reminder for us as a local church that we all do bear responsibility for watching out for one another and making sure that there are standards of godliness that are maintained among us. This is a responsibility that we all have. In fact, church discipline is a biblical and significant responsibility that too many churches ignore nowadays. Church discipline, what I mean by that is when somebody is living in ongoing unrepentant sin, like we see Hophni and Phinehas doing, that the church would actually take actions to say, that's not going to happen here anymore. And expel that person from the fellowship so that the abuse comes to an end. At Apostles Church, it's stated in our church covenant, which Ryan read for us earlier, that we bear responsibility for each other. Here's the statement. We commit to exercising an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonishing and entreating one another as occasion may require. What we're saying is we all have responsibility here for each other. And if we see somebody living in grave sin that's destructive to themselves or somebody else, we're not just going to sit back and go, well, I hope them and God sort that out. We're going to admonish, we're going to entreat, we're going to plead with them to come to their senses and repent and come back to the Lord. In addition, the process for church discipline is spelled out in detail in our church's constitution. Now, if you're visiting here today, you're like, wow, that sounds really, really intense. Like, what are these people doing? Is there like witch hunts? Like Salem, witch trials going on in this church? No. What we're not trying to do here is be sin sniffers and every every sin that every single person commits, we're 
actually going to put it up on the screen for you every Sunday. Here's Pastor Joe Rupp now sins this week. Like, that's not what we have any interest in doing. But what we are saying as a church is that we believe that the Bible teaches that we have a responsibility, that if there is grave sin, life-dominating sin, sin that people are harboring and unwilling to repent of, that is impacting them and impacting other people, we don't sit back idly and enable that. We come to them with the word of God as lovingly as we possibly can. And again, we plead for their souls. It's a serious responsibility and it's necessary to be a healthy church. Now, we also have to take note that Eli, the chief priest here, is likely not only guilty of enabling his sons, which I've been talking about, but he's actually guilty of participating in some of their sin. Notice what he said, and you honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. So Eli's being included in the yourselves who are involved in this scheme. So the sins of Hophni and Phinehas, compounded by Eli's sin, brings the judgment of God on this priestly family line. Let's pick it up in verse 30. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will be not be an old man in your house. Then in distress, you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. We'll stop there. So God says, so here's the real judgment, you guys. God says to him, although I promised Aaron that his descendants would serve before me forever, and because you're one of them and you've been included in that priestly line, you were a recipient of that promise and that blessing. He says, although that's true, he's essentially saying, I will not be mocked. Although that was true, something is now going to change because of your unfaithfulness to me. And God says, those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. And family, if you want to know God's MO of of who God uses to serve him, from Genesis to Revelation, you just saw it. God is not wowed by your skills, your beauty, your charm, your charisma. God is impressed with a pure and an upright heart before him. He says, if you will honor me, I will honor you. I could work with that. So you might look at yourself and say, I don't feel like I have a lot to bring to the table. God says, do you have an upright heart? Do you honor me? Because I could work with that. But I don't care if you have everything else going for you from an earthly perspective. If you despise me, you will be lightly esteemed. So you want to be used by the Lord, friend? Honor him with a pure heart every single day 
of your life. God says, listen, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your household. The Hebrew is really graphic. It's, I will cut off your arm and the arm of your household. Now, what's that going to look like? Well, in the first place, not one man in his family line will ever live now to be an elder. Nobody's going to make it to old age, none of the men. And this is a big deal in this culture where having elders in your family really mattered. And he says, it's never going to happen for your family again. He also says his family is going to be cut out of the prosperity that is going to come on Israel. Right? He says that they shall look with envious eye on all the prosperity. John Woodhouse in his commentary writes this. He says, the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel seems to allude to the coming days of Solomon's glorious kingdom. In those days, there will be a surviving descendant of Eli by the name of Abiathar. However, he will look on in distress for one of Solomon's early acts as king will be to expel Abiathar from the priesthood and banish him. When the historian records these events, he will add the comment, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. Now the details of verse 33 seem to strengthen the view that this is Abiathar who the prophet has in mind. Because in verse 33, this prophet warns that only one priest of Eli's family will not be killed, but all of the others are going to die by the sword of men. Now, when we get to 1 Samuel chapter 22, we're going to read a crazy story where Saul, who's hunting down King David, he executes all of the priests at Nob. There are 85 priests of Eli's household who are slaughtered in a single day. But one priest escapes and he goes and he flees to David. And we read this in 1 Samuel twenty-two twenty. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab, named, check it out, Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. So these things that God promised are carried out in detail in the decades to come. But God says, just so you know that I'm going to keep my word, there's going to be a sign that you're going to see in your lifetime. Your two sons, that evidently you love more than me, they will die on the very same day. And this is fulfilled in chapter 4, verse 11, when they're killed by the Philistines in battle. So God makes it clear that Eli's household and his priestly line is done. It's coming to an end. But, and this is what I love so much, God also makes it clear that his work will continue on. Look at verse 35. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. I love this. Human disobedience cannot undermine the plans and the purposes of God. Eli's family removed, pulled out of the equation. The plan of God still going forward. God says, your days are done, but guess what? I'm going to raise up a faithful priest for myself. Somebody who's going to do my heart, do my mind, serve me faithfully. Now, like so many of the prophecies in the Bible, there seems to be an immediate fulfillment and a more distant fulfillment to this prophecy. As a reader, you would think immediately of who? Samuel, right? 
who is this young priest who is faithful to the Lord that's literally being raised up by God in Shiloh. Unlike Eli and his son, Samuel will do according to what is in God's heart and mind. But Samuel is mainly viewed as a prophet rather than a priest in the Bible. And there's no mention of his sons carrying on the priesthood after him. So the promise that I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever seems to be referring to a new priestly family. It's likely then that this promise finds fuller fulfillment in a priest named Zadok. When Solomon removed Abiathar, Eli's final descendant from being priest, he installed a man named Zadok in his place as the new priest in Israel. 1 Kings 2.35, the king put Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, over the army in place of Joab, and the king put Zadok, the priest, in the place of Abiathar. Now, Zadok and his household would serve before the Lord's anointed, starting with King Solomon and all of the kings after up until the exile. But then when you stop and think about it, even that's not good enough, right? I mean, they did serve before the Lord's anointed for five centuries, but then it stopped during the exile. And Zadok and his family line were no longer serving the Lord. The ministry of this priest that God's talking about would go on forever. Thus, it seems that this promise finds its fullest fulfillment in Yes, you guessed it, the Lord Jesus himself, who according to Hebrews 6.20, became our high priest forever. Thus it seems that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of everything we read here. Now, if you're paying attention to what's being read here, you might have one question. In verse 35, you go, hold on. How could Jesus be the high priest who's going in and out before God's anointed forever? Isn't Jesus the anointed? I mean, the Hebrew word there is Messiah. The Greek word is Christ. Isn't his name Jesus Christ? Like he's the anointed, right? So how could Jesus be going in and out before God's anointed forever? The answer is this. Ultimately, the faithful priest that God would raise up forever would also be God's anointed one. In Jesus, these two offices are merged into one. He's the priest of God forever and he is God's anointed. He's our Messiah forever. Well, in verse 36, we see that Eli's whole household would not be exterminated, but they would be removed from any position of power. They would beg the new priests for a morsel of food or for any little job they could get around the sanctuary. Therefore, in the family of Eli, the words of Hannah's prayer from last week are literally fulfilled. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. Talk about a great reversal, right? This is an incredible story. Now, we've gotten to the end of the text and you've got to be thinking to yourself, like, that's it, Pastor Daniel? That's your Mother's Day sermon? I mean, you gave us like that little nugget about Hannah. Seriously? You've been working on this all week and that's the best thing you can do, huh? Well, I thought long and hard about it. And I was like, man, what what is the message for the mothers? And, and, And I got it. You ready for this? Did you notice that Eli's wife is never once mentioned in the text? The mother of Hophni and Phinehas. There's a reason for that. Because if mom had been around, none of this would have ever happened. Right? There it is. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms. You guys are the ones that that keep the wheels on the wagon, right? Well, in conclusion, let me just say this. The books of Samuel tell the story of God's great work to establish his king in Israel, 
David. But first, God needed to prepare the nation by cleaning up his own house. Under the leadership of Eli and his sons, the sanctuary at Shiloh had become corrupt and the people of Israel were being exploited and abused rather than shepherded and served. But God would not tolerate that. He never does. So God brought radical change to the priesthood. The wicked and the corrupt are now on their way out and the righteous and the faithful are assuming their position. And I was thinking about this, that it is easy for us as Christians to just feel discouraged when we see prominent Christian leaders fall from grace. We just go, man, what? This is just, this is not helping the cause of Christ. But can I suggest to you today, based on this text, that maybe that's actually a good sign and not a bad one? As you and I earnestly pray for revival to sweep through our land, perhaps the first step is judgment in the house of God. Let's pray together. God, we pray now that you would take your holy word that we've just considered together as a church family and that you would drive it deep into our hearts. God, that we would take warning where we need to take warning in this text. And Lord, that we would find encouragement where we're meant to be encouraged in this text. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to look at our calling. You call every single one of us in the New Testament a royal priesthood. We pray we would take that seriously. And whereas Eli and his sons didn't look at that calling as something that was so amazing that they would rise up to it, we pray we'd be different. That we would recognize that this amazing calling that you've placed on each of us to be your priesthood, to represent you to the world, would so inspire us and so fill us with gratitude because we know it's all from grace that we would seek to honor you above all else. And Lord, we pray as we do that, that you would honor us, that you would bless the work of our hands and that you would help us to have great impact for you and your kingdom. And we ask all of this now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you, family. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms. And we're gonna close now with a song of worship. So let's do that.